Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. I'm very excited that we have today a very, very special guest. We met probably eight years ago or so at DragonCon. Ten. Ten years ago. Ten years ago. Okay, ten years ago. Wow. (laughs) At DragonCon. He was cool, but I totally fell in love with his daughter. She was so cute in her... uh, what hey, was her costume? She it was had? a hit girl costume. Yeah, she yeah. was just so cute in that. But anyway, we're we're not talking with her though. So I'm going to introduce you to a world class fantasy illustrator and artist, Tom Wood. Hi, Tom. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's been an honor just being here and part of the um, watching you guys do your thing with the event. Um, Everything I've seen so far has just blown me away, and the the other guests and the uh, the contributing artists and judges are just uh, world class. So thank you. You're very very welcome. But um, I can assure you, you wouldn't be here if you didn't qualify. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you so much. Absolutely. So I guess to start with, since this is the first time we've actually chatted, just so you know, um, Tom is our, our latest Illustrated Feature judge, and. We're going to get into why it is that he's a judge for us now. So if you go to his website at TomWoodFantasyArt.com, I've got a a large array of my um, several of my fantasy art pieces that I've done over the years. It's been licensed or some that are licensed and still available for licensing. And then others that I've done for um, musical groups like Insane Clown Posse or, you know, um, Kiss, Aerosmith, uh, other bands that I've done album covers for. Oh, just like that? Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you specialize in fantasy art, but when you go to your website, it has, you got ICP art, which we'll define in a moment, mm-hmm. and then your section on fantasy art, underground collection, and sports art. So the other ones we can like slide by momentarily without people like wondering what the heck is that, but ICP art. So what is that, and how did that become to be a thing oh that's um actually that's a very interesting and <laughs> long story but um in my career i i was a um, sports graphics artist i'd worked for salem sportswear in the 90s and salem sportswear um did mascots for different college teams and professional teams and i was on in the division that illustrated mascots um so i would take like a north carolina tar hill or a um Los Angeles Ram, and I would illustrate their mascot, and we would put it on apparel, print it on apparel. Um, it was interesting because, you know, when they came to, they would come to me because the fans, they would sell really good, aggressive mascots. But my mascots tended to be extremely aggressive, it seemed. And so, especially the college would push back on it and say, it's it's bordering satanic at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, really a little, you know, cut it back. It's a little too much. And um, so anyway, I kind of got a reputation for doing really sinister looking uh, mascots, and uh, which was fine with me. And uh, But years later, my um, design director, Carrie Gallagher, who's a sweetheart, she, uh, she went to work with Live Nation and I had since left corporate, the corporate world and began my freelance operation and was doing a lot of advertising work and um, commercial work under MeridianDesignWorks.com, which is a website that I still have that I sort of cater that to my um, ad agencies and mm-hmm. places like that. So Carrie called me up and says, we are doing a lot of business with Spencer's and Hot Topics and Insane Clown Posse is our hottest property. And they've been using these same jokers for years. Uh, I would love to see, knowing your style, I would love to see what you could do with it. So it was... Uh, so that's ICP, Insane Clown Posse. Insane Clown Posse. And these guys um, have almost a cult-like following. They started in 1992, and um, they have a million fans on Facebook. And uh, there's no... I mean, they have have a huge following. It's very similar to uh, the Grateful Dead's fans. Grateful Dead fans called Deadheads, but more of an inner city, uh, Midwestern um, following. And um, so, that, you know, that was, my, that was my target audience. Anyway, um, yeah, so they've been looking at these same logos that they had launched with their initial albums for the past 25 years at this point. So when I took their logos and sort of started re, uh, I guess, realizing them in a, more of a 3D fashion, more of a realistic 
look, um, Hot Topics and Spencer's just jumped on it. And they got in a bidding war with Live Nation and Hot Topic won. And then Spencer says, I don't know who this Tom Wood guy is, but we want him to do our insane clown posse line. And they said, we'll pay whatever. We'll pay whatever we want. And I'm like, okay, this is, it sounds like I've got some good leverage here. So with your pinky in your mouth, yeah, $1 million. Like, dollars. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of money. But one important thing, you're going to leave my name on there. And they're like, we don't do that. We do not leave. We do not put the artist names on there. Because I guess they would assume that another company may poach me or whatever. And uh, they wanted to keep me in their hip pocket. And I said, well, you just can't have the artwork then. And I'd already done several of them to show them, to entice them, you know. And uh, so they finally, I guess, gave in and said, okay, you can put your name on there. So anyway, the name got went out into the public and hot, uh, Spencer's made a huge uh, display in the stores, and they sold just tons of it. And it was just a huge success. And uh, But most importantly, the Juggalo started asking who, who Tom Wood is. You know, when was the next Tom Wood piece coming out? And uh, so I did probably 40, 50 pieces through Live Nation over the next course of the next two or three years. And then um, Psychopathic finally got wise and said, why are we going to Live Nation to work with uh, Tom Wood when we can just work with Tom Wood. So they they contacted me, and for the past six years, I've just been working directly with that with that label. Wow, it's amazing. It is. And uh, in 2016, they asked me to do, they have something called Dark Carnival Games, and that's a game company that Rob Bruce, who is like a master gamer, designs these games. And he brought me in to design over 300 cards for this um, deck-building game. And invited me out to their huge musical festival called The Gathering of the Juggalos. And uh, I was like, Rob, I, I'm from a little town in Arkansas. I don't have any tattoos. I don't, I don't smoke. I don't have any piercings. I'm not sure that I'm going to fit in with your crowd. And he says, no, you just got to come out and see it for yourself. I, mean, I think these people are going to love you. So I went out there tentatively. And uh, sure enough, probably the most appreciative, um, respectful fans that I've ever met. With their Harleys and their yeah Harleys, <laughs> their guns and their tattoos and their <laughs> I don't know about guns, but um, yeah, actually they've been fighting this um, FBI gang label for since 2012, and which was just it's ridiculous. Um, there may be a few bad seeds, but uh, if you went to the Gathering of Juggalos, there's no fights, there's no rapings, there's no thievery. Um, if, if you went to a uh, Oh, Metallica concert. I would almost promise you that there would be 10 times as much as that. And there's, you know, nobody says a word about that. But anyway, it's, um, it's just an unjustly, you know, no, place I'm label. tracking with that, tracking with that totally. So that's, so that's that category that you have there of the underground. That's the underground collection? Yes, the underground collection is Insane Clown Posse is pretty much the godfathers of that entire musical scene. Now you have other bands and um, that's come along that sort of look to these guys as you know the leader of this underground movement. And so I've done design works for some of the smaller bands too. And I put that in the underground collection. So when you do these album covers, because we've had some of our judges um, before we had um, like uh, Frank Kelly Freese has that, has that one cover that he did um, with uh, the giant robot holding the, the, uh, the bo- the person in his hand that's mm. dead you know yes yep. that was the cover for um, was it Rolling Stones it was it was one of the any one of the big bands in the sixties I think they, it was Rolling Stones actually. yeah yeah and um, so that's that's just so cool how'd you get onto the line with with um, doing cover albums for these big bands well th- again that was live mostly Live Nation Live Nation when I I first started out doing uh, apparel designs for their um, concert tours. And they were doing so well with these shirts. Then they started saying, well, you know, this guy, this guy's sh- shirt artwork looks better than our labels or the, than our album covers. So let's start asking Tom to do our album covers for us. So then that's how it, it sort of naturally progressed into that. Wow. Cause that's so it was in through the uh, Live Nation line, not through the actual um, album label. Right. It was that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. It was kind of just proving yourself with some kind of, you know, 
baptism of fire, doing yeah. apparel, and then just graduating up. And I think all artists kind of go through that growth process where they have to prove themselves in you know a smaller venue, and then yeah. get to graduate up to the the bigger projects. Now you do. I said you've got so this ICP fantasy art underground collection and sports art. So right, the sports art. Like I said, when I first started my career, of course I come from a tiny town called Mammoth Spring, Arkansas, with a population of about 800 people. My graduating class is about 18. Uh, we're all, everyone's dirt poor. You know, we're in the middle of Arkansas, uh, which is fine because, you know, we really didn't see money out, out there. So there was no clicks. Or there's, you know, there wasn't rich kids and poor kids in this side of town. We're all just in it together. And, um, but we didn't have money for art classes. We didn't even have, you know, anything like that. So if you wanted to do art, then... You just had to do it on your own. And um, so, yeah, that was my humble beginnings. And But when you decide that you want to be an artist in the middle of rural Arkansas, you have to think, what the hell am I going to do with art here? Who needs artists? And uh, so I got into screen printing. And that's the only people that had art departments that I could find. So once, once I moved into that, I quickly moved from – I think I started my first screen printing job – um, when I was 20 or 19, and then as assistant art director, became art director within a month because the people I worked for were just crooks, and they knew that I, they were paying me half as much as the art directors. They fired him and then made me their first 19-year-old art director, and then I did that for three years and learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And then the headhunters started coming looking for you know talent, and then that's when Salem Sportswear found me. And um recruited me up to Nashua, not Nashua, New Hampshire, but Hudson, New Hampshire, to work on their sports programs. So once I got up there, I was doing caricatures and, and college mascots and stuff like that. And it just, so sports apparel and sports graphics is just ingrained in me. I've been, I've done it for so many years. So, and that once I left the corporate world and the sports apparel world, world that seemed to follow me into my advertising stuff too, because, mm-hmm. you know, Pepsi and everybody uses sports for for their advertising, so it, it's it's uh, it's been a nice feather in my hat over the years. So you still, so all these things with ICP art, underground collection, sports art, those are all active pursuits that you still they are. create art for. But if you if you w- went to MeridianDesignWorks.com, you'll see a lot of the advertising companies that I still do a lot of work for, like Pepsi and the NFL, MLB, um, World Wrestling Entertainment. Um, just to mention a few, there's too many to really mm-hmm. remember, but uh, that's just a few of the highlights. But I still do work for all those advertising agencies. On top of trying to continue building my fantasy art collection and pursuing this underground thing that seems to have taken on a life of its own. And um, and I sell, I have a huge fan following with the Juggalos, and it's allowed me to open up a store and sell prints with, you know. In your 800 population town? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, we have way more cows than people in my town, that's for sure. <laughs> so how does somebody go in a town of 800 people, no art school there at all, no art education. And how much was the internet a factor? It wasn't, it wasn't there when you There was no up. internet. There was no internet. There was Absolutely. no social media. So it was like, no. what did you do to, how did you get started? How did you launch? Was it like you had your crayons and your white wall that right. well, you just kept you on just repainting? Kinda, and <laughs> you just kind of punch out in lots of different directions, hoping that, certain doors may open and you know shine a light in the direction that you supposed you're supposed to go because my father was a and still is um he's a cattle rancher and before that he was a USDA inspector and so there was no artist in my family to sort of give me any kind of guidance as far as what to what to do I um was in 10th grade and my math teacher says why don't you start doing political cartoons for the local paper so I started you know I was the political cartoon guy in uh and 10th grade for uh, for my little town. And uh, that's how my art career really got started. And then um, I got... you kept on getting busted in class, uh, no. drawing instead of paying attention? No, the, actually, my teachers are so supportive. They would, um, 
they just look forward to seeing all the little sketches and doodles that I would do on the paper. And my algebra teacher was the one that would be feeding me, hey, Tom, this is a great political story. I'm in 10th grade. I don't know, sh- I don't know anything about yeah. politics. Like, this is what's happening in this school, and you need to do this, and this would be funny. So he would feed me these ideas. And then I would do it in his class sometimes. You know, as long as I finished his little, you know, his little project, I would just start sketching, and I would show him, and he would give me feedback. Um, yeah, Mr. Carlisle uh, just recently passed, but he was a huge influence on uh, in me putting art, having the, I guess the the guts to put it out there, and uh, more of a public, uh, you know, viewing for something like that instead of showing my friends and knowing that everyone was going to pat me on the back and tell me I was great. So it was it was good. I get it. So were your, were your family supportive? Because if your dad's a rancher, it would seem like he'd probably be more inclined to to trust in the, the more proven methods of livelihood, yes. like ranching or becoming a doctor. Right. Or And you're right. I think over the years, I'm sure him and my mom, who were both extremely supportive, I'm sure they was like, they thought this this may be something that would come to it would sort of resolve itself at some point. <laughs> <laughs> he'll get he'll come to a senses right once he once he goes hungry long enough then he's going to go get a job and um but no I was lucky enough to that they were always supportive they always took everything that I brought home or every any kind of art competition or if I entered in the local fair and won you know they would just be very supportive. Well, that's great. They put it up on the, you know, everything went up on the refrigerator. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> made and, uh, it on the refrigerator. Yes. So when I actually got hired when I was 19 for an art job, they started thinking, he may, he may actually pull this shit off, you know, so this may be great. And, uh, and sure enough, like I said, once I moved from assistant art director to art director and then was hired by one of the largest uh, apparel companies in the country to do work for them, they was like, okay, he's found it. He's, he's going to be fine. That's good. So, next question. Okay, when are you going to move out of the house, son? <laughs> Lather was 30 years old today. <laughs> so, um, I mean, that's fascinating because a lot of artists have that. There's, there's a problem with, also with writing too, where you get used to having a job of like, you're up to making 50, 60, 70, 90, $100,000 a year doing a, the regular job mm-hmm. and then the transition to doing art to, to writing a book it means you're going to do a serious pay cut right if you you know speaking with Dan Dos Santos he didn't want to do that he started he said I'd never want to work anything other than doing art and so he worked out a budget where he said I started I needed $200 a month I lived in my parents basement and I needed $200 to buy food and pay for my you know bus and then he just built up from there and he's never had to work any other type of, of job other than doing his art. And what you did, even if you're, you know, art director or doing something in the studio making art, that's still art, you know? Right. So how was your, did you always just keep it with with art all throughout your career? Or Right. I've never been, never had another job other than artwork. That's doing art. The, I think the biggest leap that I made was leaving the corporate world and starting and starting my own company. Meridian Design Works, and then eventually Tom and Fantasy Art after that. But that jump was kind of, or that transition was um, kind of fast-forwarded in 1998. Um, I'd taken over um, art direction for the um, special events program at Starter. And, of course, this was during the Michael Jordan era, so we were selling millions of shirts. Hot markets went from $3 million when I arrived to $33 million within three years, and we were just, we were killing it. Unfortunately, the rest of the company was bleeding. It was just bleeding money. The shoes were crashing. The jackets weren't selling anymore. And uh, David Beckerman, who was the owner, pulled us all onto the second floor in, in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. I remember it like it was yesterday. And um, announced that Starter uh, is closing its doors. And you're free to go. And he, he just showed us out into the parking lot that day with no former notice. And I vowed to myself that day that I would never work for someone else and put my future in the hands of someone else besides me. If I failed from at this point, it was going to, I was going to be the only one responsible for it. And that's in 1998, I started Meridian Design Works and that's never looked back. That's great. And then you've, I mean, you've, you've got a family, you own half of Mississippi now. <laughs> 
no, I um, I have a small, well, small. I have a decent sized ranch in Arkansas. I have like 310 acres that's that my family owns, just me and my wife and daughter. And uh, my my father has probably five six hundred acres. We have you know several hundred cows that uh, that we uh, take care of every every year. So um, yeah, that's a and it's great being able to be on a farm. It's um, being able to step away from artwork and being so creative and just involved in it. And I can walk out the door and then it's just, I'm back to my childhood. I'm taking care of cows. We're herding them and working them and selling them. And it's just, you know, you get to forget all that and you get to be in this beautiful landscape where you get to do it at surrounded by family. And then once, uh, you know, but when that pull to be creative comes along again, it's just a matter of walking back into the studio and just turning that switch back on. But at right. least I'm able to turn it off for a little bit and just be Tom again instead of, you know, Tom Wood Illustrator. Right. So now when you do your um, art, what type of mediums do you use? Are you multiple or is it just primarily photoshop or well um i have several different styles um I, I try to keep it a big variety because i don't want to be get bored with any certain style but i guess my i'm mostly well known for my photorealistic looks and um but i do logo design and page layout and you know everything that an advertising agency might come to me for i've been able to master it over the years so um you know, I'm happy doing any kind of style. But yes, um, when I was a child, we would have this local fair. And at the time, um, they would have games and stuff like that. But there was always this air, airbrush booth that they would set up. And they would have, you know, Tanya and Ricky with hearts on it. And they'd be airbrushed. And I would, I would just be completely, um, I don't know, just enthralled watching this guy, you know, pull these airbrushes up and put together these paintings in, in minutes. And it was so smooth and... Um, fluid the way he would work and I was like I need to do that so airbrushing is how I started and once um, Photoshop came along with the either the Wacoms or the Cintiq pads um, it was a very easy transition going from a Pache airbrush to Photoshop with a Wacom pen so and that's how I still do my illustrations so now didn't you or do you do um, statues or I do. I do sculptures, yeah, I too. I remember sculptures from your booth 10 years ago or so at, at DragonCon. Uh, yeah, yes. Well, I've, I've done several statues and was able to sell them to several good collections over the years. But the dragons that you've seen at the booth were yeah. actually um, some of the licensing. And licensing has been a huge thing uh, in my career. I was introduced to some licensing agents in the early 2000s that wanted to take – that wanted to take several of my dragon pieces and then license them. And Pacific Trading was a company at the time that did a lot of sculptures, and they licensed almost all my dragons at, the, at this point. And they took them and they did the sculptures and hand-painted them in resin, and uh, they were just beautiful, and they've sold out since. But, you know, that was, that was a big day for me, being able to see those illustrations kind of come to life in 3D. So, they, so it was an illustration that they then made into... right. The statue. Have you yourself done statues? Absolutely. Yes, I've done. Like I said, I've done statues that I've sold uh, individually. I usually would do them out of Sculpey because I don't never would cast them and mass produce them. I would just do one offs for uh, certain collectors that ask for them and just sell them directly to them. Wow. So um, the subject of art itself. So you've obviously succeeded with that. When you've got the. Um, the whole thing of, of how to make a livelihood out of it. So you, you did stuff, so you left corporate. How did you, you know, in that transition, you're getting into the nitty-gritty of it. So it's fine, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sell my soul to corporate anymore. I'm going to for, forge on my own, and I'm going to do it. Right. So what do you do to do it? You well, know? luckily, when Starter closed its doors, it was in New Haven, Connecticut. And between Waterbury and uh, Danbury, Connecticut, is some of the is the probably the biggest congestion of uh, ad agencies in the world. I mean, they were just lying down the street. Ryan Partnership, Tracy Locke, D'Angelo, uh, DDB, um, all these ad agencies were right there. And so it was just a matter of. Um, and Silverman Group was the first one that I started working with. And um, 
I had worked with them while I was art director at Starter. So they already knew me and they started approaching me. And um, it seems like the uh, ad agency industry is very incestuous as far as you work for one art director and then all of a sudden they get hired at TLP and they take you there and then all the other art directors see what you're what they're working on and like who who's doing that art for you. So it just sort of naturally spread uh-huh. um, in that in that industry. And uh, so that worked out very well for, for many years. And uh, and so it was just ad agency piece after ad agency piece, and uh, not the most enjoyable work. Uh, I mean, it paid really well, and it was it was certainly challenging. But uh, it wasn't the reason that I got into artwork right. in the first place. You know, when I and when I was eight years old, and I seen that what was it Molly Hatchet cover of with Frank Frazetta's Death Dealer on it, and I was like, this this, this is, is what cool. I want to do. This, is cool. this is what I want to do. So I was like. Who did this? Frank Frazetta. Oh, he did these two. He did these, you know, he did this entire uh, chronology of Conan. Have you seen these? I'm like, no. So I had to re- <laughs> bought all those books, uh, read all the, uh, in sixth grade, read the entire chronology of Conan by Robert E. Howard with covers done by Frank Frazetta. And uh, I was like, this is, this is it. This is what I want to do. So, and then I just, I couldn't get enough of it. I kept uh, buying Savage Sword of Conan that was put out by Marvel, and uh, a lot of the covers was done by uh, Joe Jusco, who was uh, doing their their cover paintings. And I'm like, I don't really want to do the panels. That didn't, you know, that wasn't holding my attention and making me stare at it for hours. But the cover pieces was just so beautiful, and that's what I, that's really what I wanted to excel at. So, but I didn't know how to get there. So screen printing went into advertising and advertising did well and it's it sort of built me the padding financially to where I could start exploring the fantasy art at the age of 30 which I really wanted to start when I was 19 but I had to I had to go through this process I had to find my way to get back to what made me want to be an artist to begin with so and even now I still do advertising stuff I still anything that I leave for a while I kind of miss it Mm -hmm. that I've done for a while whether it that be sports, you know, sports graphics or rock and roll or ad agency work. I always like to go back and still do it a little bit just to keep everything fresh. So I get it. How much do you do just for yourself where you just do your own personal pieces, not commission or anything else, and then say, this is really nice, and then sell it just? Um, or is that what these other things are? This, this, is, this is my fantasy world. This is what I want to do. It's not commission. I do it and then they buy it because they want it. Well, that's the beautiful thing about licensing. And uh, what an artist had told me years ago was, don't ever sell your work. You know, try not to, once you sign that dotted line and promise them that you're going to hand over these files it's, and it's gone forever, you're missing the boat. Um, the best thing is you're not going to get paid for it and it's going to suck. But you're going to get to keep that piece. And then if you find the right agent or agency to represent you, then you can license that to lots of different entities, and they can pay you royalties, and you get to keep your artwork. Um, and that's what I was able to do. I was lucky to find uh, Be Creative at one point, and they took me so far into the licensing. And then Tate Licensing, which was probably the largest fantasy art licensing company in the country, picked me up and um, – has has just done really well for me. So, and like even the work that I do for Insane Clown Posse, I don't. They don't commission me. They will request it, but I don't charge them for it. I keep that artwork and it's mine. And then I will make a um, co license with Psychopathic Records, and then we'll sell it together. Wow. So that's that's. I'm, this is the first time I've actually had. This is a conversation with someone. So you you own everything that you've got, but then you don't do oil. You don't do the stuff where you you've made it and then you make copies of it. It's it's all this is Photoshop stuff. So you actually have it's almost like an intellectual property because you've got right. Yeah, you know. yeah. It's all it's all digital at this point. But it uh, it sort of lends itself to licensing because let's say you want to do uh, once you build it. You can format it very quickly and easily for apparel, or you can take that same artwork and then you can expand the canvas and reformat it for beach towels or whatever somebody wants to put on there. It's much easier to do that from a digital standpoint than it is from scanning a canvas and trying right. to, to build it like that. You can move things around or change your background to fit whatever product it's going on very quickly. 
I get it. So now when you, you know, come with these different ideas that you have, is this this, you go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning like, aha, this is my clown this time, or how do you come up with your different ideas? Because fantastical art, by very definition, is fantastical. It's not like the, the real life stuff. It's, it's got a, that, that twist to it, that special thing that makes it not what you see in front of you right now. I, yeah, that's a great question, John. I'm, usually, whatever project I'm working on, I, I usually have a sketch pad that's right next to me, and something will inspire me, or it's just a flash of a vision, and I'll just do a quick thumbnail I'll take a break from whatever project I'm working on, whether it's NASCAR or whatever, and stop working on that. And then I'll doodle this little sketch, and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to come back to you. You know, don't worry, <laughs> I'm not forgetting you. And then I'll go ahead and I'll finish my project and get paid for it. And that, like, not everything that I do that I own. Let me go back and sort of amend that. Um, the stuff that I do for advertising agencies, they usually want to do total buyouts because they want to use it as long as they want to, and and I don't sign it, and it's advertising. Right. But anything that's that I'm very proud of and want to, you know, put my name on, I don't sell. So, Okay, I got it on that. But yes, um, when it comes to inspiration, there's no telling when it's going to hit me, but it usually it comes in a flash, and then I'll sketch it and then revisit it later. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I do for Insane, for Insane Clown Posse is um, not only I help them design their logos now. It used to be just solely one of the band members did that, and now um, they brought me sort of into that to help them um, sort of finalize these logos. So I have, I know what they're going to look like months and months before the fans ever get a chance to see them. So I start trying to visualize what I know the fans are going to want to see. And usually as soon as they see the logo, the next question is, I can't wait to see what, you know, Tom Wood's going to do with this. And and hopefully I've already got a head start because you have to, it's all about timing. Um, You've got to sort of, and I've learned a lot from watching them because they sort of hype things up and they release it and there's a they call it you know heat because there's a lot of attention on it and they've learned a lot of their marketing uh, techniques from wrestling professional wrestling and um, so they'll amp stuff up and they'll just give little taste of it and they won't release it right away and then they'll just unveil it and there will be a lot of hype for it so. You know, I know that when that when it's hot, you know, I need to start having my product ready to unveil shortly after that. I don't want to steal any of their heat or steal any of their sales from their albums or uh, mm-hmm. tours. So I'll wait a decent amount of time and I'll um, communicate with them to make sure I'm not stepping on any toes and then I'll unveil my stuff. So and that's how we've done it for years. I get it. That's that's amazing. Now, when. Um we originally met you, like I said, at DragonCon. I think there was, you had seen some of the different art that we had from our, because that's how you met Sarah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And it was, we had our books, we had the pulp covers, and we had the various books that we had. What was it that Sarah first, how'd she first ensnare you? Uh, it wasn't <laughs> hard because she had that backdrop. Of course, she had the books up front. Yeah. Um, L. Ron Hubbard, who I knew was a fantastic science fiction writer, but um, I did not know how much work Frank Frazetta had done for you guys uh, until I started seeing all these paintings. And of course, you know, like I said, Death Dealer was my the inspiration for my entire career. So when I seen anything with Frank Frazetta, that I'm like, is that a print? And then she goes, Yeah, that's his. You know, that's one of a thousand, and that's you know he signed here. And I'm like, That's his real signature. And so it was just, you know. It didn't take much, you yeah. know. They didn't have to sort of bait me in too much to have me, you know, uh, salivating over those prints with Frank Frazetta's signature on them. He was one of our first judges for the Illustrator. Yes, contest. I know that. Yeah. So yeah, and you know, when you guys asked me to be a judge, knowing that Frank Frazetta had been in, in the same position was kind of a dream come true. So yeah, it's just it's because um, he talked about how both um, Hubbard and Frazetta both admired each other so because Fred Frazetta found Hubbard's work so easy to illustrate so because he did several pieces he did the one for Final Blackout where he was he actually um, he took the, the shot of himself the Polaroid as a Frank posing as the lieutenant for the piece uh, Final Blackout that that's him that's a self-portrait right yeah whereas he's the he's that's that piece and then he did the piece for Mission Earth which was um, uh, the Countess and then there's the one for Battlefield Earth that he did and then we had several of the other covers for Writers of the Future. 
and I used to work with Ellie, his wife, to negotiate all the uh, transactions and stuff. I have and to say I'm very envious. The fact that you actually had <laughs> face-to-face conversations with my hero is just, you know, it's it's hard to even grasp. But, um, yes, I'm very envious just hearing the stories. And Joni was the same way. She talked about her conversations with uh, with just on the plane ride over from the airport to this to the uh, awards. The Joni was telling me these stories, and I was just captivated listening to it. So I hope you guys know how lucky you are to, you know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It was, um, you know, it was just great. And uh, and we're now very good friends with his uh, granddaughter, who's now has taken over the Frazetta girls. He's they got the site yes. Frazetta girls, and um, I know them well. I'm, I've corresponded with them myself a little bit. Yeah, so she's hoping to be here next year for the Rise of Peace. She said, when is it going to be? I need to start planning right now to come. Wow. Yeah, Sarah, the, the granddaughter. And she has pictures of, you know, with her as a little baby that Frank was holding her. And, you know, just she loved her grandpa. And her grandpa definitely loved his little granddaughter. Oh, that's amazing. But it was just, um, it's interesting just as the, um, what we did with the writers' contest when it was created in 1983 by Owen Hubbard um, and bringing on board some of the, the the biggest names in science fiction during the, the golden age and um, it started in 83. But the original ones that were brought on board were the people that were the cohorts, like I said, back in the 50s and 60s. And then when we started the Illustrator contest a few years later, Frank Fazette, I mean um, Frank Kelly Fries was the original coordinating judge and he was one of the illustrators from the pulp magazines, he did a lot of stuff, and he really liked doing Owen Harbour stories because they were so evocative, very easy to do. But like I was saying, that's what the judges that were around at that time that were alive when LRH was alive, and they illustrated his, his work. You know, Frank said, nobody does adventure fiction like Owen Hubbard, and Owen um, Hubbard called Frank just just the, the dean of, of uh, fantasy art. He just... He no. just he loved his his illustration, which is why he commissioned him to do those those um, paintings. Uh, it's a fitting title. I've not heard that, but I think that's great. Yeah, he definitely was that. So now, as an illustrator, I'm going to ask you this: like, what inspired you to say yes to be an illustrator to the future judge? Um, what inspired me? Well, I've known, like you said, we met ten years ago. So it's not like I've agreed to come judge for a bunch of strangers. You know, I've right. gotten to know you guys for years. And, um, you know, I, I I think of you guys as friends. So, um, and Sarah's been great. And she's, she would talk to me, Tom, you should come do this. Tom, you should come do this for years. And um, it's usually been, I've been so busy and, and then Emily was in school, but now she's in college and I've got a little more time to be able to um, give back. And I've not seen any program out there that gives back or pays it forward to artists and the creatives like uh, like this program. I've um, I'm just been floored by what you guys have done for these kids. Yeah, and it's um, one thing is interesting too. You know, Echo refers to them as her kids too, and you call them kids. But there'll be winners that sometimes they're going to be. Six, we had one a few years ago who was he, he won the contest. He was in the seventies. Wow, really? Yeah, because it's blind judging. So all you're going to see is the art as a judge. So you have no idea of the nationality, age, sex, anything. It's just they, they got it right or they didn't. Well, good, good for him because you're right. There's no reason that you don't have to start at five years old and declare that you're going to be an artist like I did. You can, you can start at any age and mm-hmm. just take it wherever you want it to go. It's really a matter of how much dedication and you're willing to sacrifice to sort of travel that path. Yeah. We've got one winner in the writer contest this year. They're here right now. Um, and the elder gentleman who is 67 years old was amazed because another winner in there is 17. She's the youngest winner we've ever had for the writer contest. She's just, she's brilliant. But you know, a, a 50 year difference. And he was just like, he wanted to get, he got a picture taken with it. Like, you know, <laughs> But that's what the thing is just it celebrates art, it celebrates writing, specifically fantastical, you know, science fiction, fantasy, art, or or writing. Yeah, Owen Hubbard did a whole lot of research into art, what made it good, what made it bad. And one of the things which um several of the people when they when they actually do the finish the workshop is 
is, and I, even when I was just talking with, with B. Jackson, who also recently became a judge, she was the grand prize winner in, in volume 24. And she said, after all these years, the thing that really rings true to me, and I really, it really stood there, is art is the quality of communication. And, you know, it's, it's got to communicate. What are you trying to communicate? And he goes into how much, when's an art piece done? Some people can't finish. They can't say, okay, this is done. And, you know, um, that whole thing. And she said, that was, that's really helped her a whole lot, you know, as, as an artist, that what you're really doing is you're communicating through illustration or right. with whatever you're doing there. And it's that quality that makes it sell. Like obviously what you've done here has got that amazing quality of communication that it sells because other people do stuff and it's just like, that's pretty, I guess, you know, <laughs> but it doesn't communicate anything. Right. You know, mm. you look at some of the masters. Yeah, I would love to read that. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll get that for you. It's, there's a whole book that was put together called Art. And it's just, he goes into uh, color depth. He goes into the mood lines, a whole section on mood lines, what works in, you know, all the different moods that you can, that you can invoke. And then all types of stuff on the difference between art and illustration, you know, just all these different things there and quality of communication, That's defining fantastic. what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Aesthetics, what, what constitutes that, you know. Very cool. Yeah. So on the, um, so I'm a beginning artist, and I want to I want to get going on this stuff here. I want to I want to get myself as a career as an artist, and my parents say, yeah, don't put your your hopes too much in there. Or you got friends that say that. What do you do when you're you're going there and you've got people around you that are that aren't so supportive? You know how important is that to have be around supportive people, hmm. especially as you're starting and you don't have that nest egg already there. You're starting off and you're, you're going week by week. Right. Um, how do you, what do you tell? Oh, it's funny. I, I'm like the only artist within 300 miles for any of these rural kids that want to be artists. So, you know, their parents will make, call me and make, you know, appointments to come to the studio and let them talk to me and show their portfolios. And, um, you know, you can tell who's got talent and who who needs to work on it a lot and you certainly don't want to crush anybody's dreams but um it all comes down to you know how much you're willing to invest in that and um you know i can i can point them in the right directions i what i usually tell them is if you really want to see yourself flourish try to get a job in an in an art department that has like-minded very talented people to pitch yourself against to try to improve and um i think that'll bring them to the to more of a level than anything that they may learn in their high school art class. And, uh, you know, you know, when I took my first job from champion and when I went up to Salem sportswear to, to work with the best artists in the field, they didn't pay me enough to really live up there. At the time I got through paying my rent and, uh, everything else, my utilities, I had like $11 at the end of the week to live off of. And um, see, when I first got up there, I lived- Top ramen! Yeah, ramen, mac and cheese. <laughs> and I, you know, until the crappy furniture I was moving up from Memphis got there, I just, you know, I slept in the floor. But no one ever knew about that. I certainly was not going to call Andy Wood, my dad, and say, Dad, send me some money. Or, you know, it's this is harder than I thought it was going to be. I was never- going to let show any weakness when it come to that. This was, I don't want you to worry. I didn't even, you know, I didn't want them to worry about me. This is going to happen. You know, this is just a little setback and we're going to make it happen. And I tell them, you've got to be prepared to sacrifice. You've got to be prepared to burn those bridges or burn those ships like Cortez did and say, this is what I'm going to do. And there's no, there's no plan B. So, so part of it is that, I mean, you don't have blood in your veins. You've got ink or that concept of like right that it's it's that's your your life is is art it is and once you realize that you know once you realize your mortality and i think i did around 25 that you only got one shot at this you know there's not going to be any redos at the end of this and we have a 20,000 hours on this planet and you've got to make the most of them and you know, just you've got to you've got to do it, or it's just you know a wasted life. If this was, is what you think that you've been put on this earth to do, so. So then, for someone who's just looking at art as a dabble, as compared to a dedication, 
then, yeah. Look, look for something else. Okay, good. So now on... I mean, there's nothing wrong with it being a hobby. No, I'm, I'm tracking. Of, I'm tracking. I'm yeah. talking about somebody that really wants to make it. Say, so, yeah, I have dreams of being a famous artist. Someday. I want to be a Tom Wood. You know, I want to be a Frank Cavazetta or whatever. It's got to be more than just a pipe dream. It's got to be that dedication has got to go into it. And one thing that people don't really get a lot, or some people don't realize, is it's work. It's actually hard work. Absolutely. And so can you talk about that a little bit, just because it's not like hey, I'm just I'm doodling, you right? Know? Yeah. You, know, you see the kid doodling in class instead of studying his his uh, history lessons. You know, he's he's doodling. I, I know, absolutely. I think it it has to be almost an obsession if you really want to be good at it. Um, I think that it's something like my entire bedroom when I was growing up didn't you know they we redid our house at one point and we didn't even put wallpaper up back in my room it was just every inch was covered with sketches and drawings and tacked up onto the wall and you know that was um that's how my life was I mean I played sports I was on the basketball team and the baseball team and I was for the most part a very normal kid but when I went back into my room it was knock this homework out and do a pretty good job of it, and then get <laughs> get to the real work, which was drawing, and uh, you know studying anatomy and looking at the masters like Frazetta and at the time um, Bernie Wrightson and um, Joe Jusco and you know the stuff that inspired me as a kid that was you know so far above my skill level at the time, but mm. that's what I inspired to do, and I was committed to getting myself to that level, and I'm still not at that level, but you know. Those guys are are gods in the, in this field, so um, I don't think you ever um, reach that level, or at least maybe I don't think you should ever reach that level. You should always be striving to to do better. Well, I know Frazetta was always striving to do better. Absolutely, always mm-hmm. trying to, to do better. So then, on what's your normal work ethic like? What do you, what's your normal? How much time do you spend a day on your art? Or, or I'm going to dissect this a few different ways. So first okay. of all, just a typical work week, um, how does it go down in terms of your creating art? Um, every, the great thing about artwork and having a wide array of different fields that you're still participating in, um, every week is different. There's no no week has ever been the same. Uh, but I would say that's probably 30% advertising, um, 60% fantasy artwork, and um, probably... 10% either training um, other artists on how to do what I do. Got it. And then how many hours a day would that be? Uh, I'd say at least at least 10 to 12 hours because even once the artwork is done, then you have to sort of shift gears and then be, you know, dad and husband and farmer. And I don't want to release – I don't want to give away anything. I want it all, you know, yeah. so <laughs> – you just kind of juggle, and if it turns when you finish at the end of the day at three in the morning, you know, at least when you sleep, go to sleep that night, you think, you know, I've spent this day well. That's that's awesome. And then on, um, so that's the number of hours that you work to do a typical painting. And you said you said you do you do a sketch, and then from the sketch to Photoshop. Right. I'll usually do a sketch, a pencil sketch, uh, initial concepts, especially if it's for me. I usually don't do four or five concepts unless I'm working for a client that wants to see an arrange or a different array of looks. Uh, I know what I want. I've been thinking about it for days before I get to it. So mm-hmm. I do a, a pretty tight pencil sketch. Then I do my shading studies and breakdowns. And then I'll do an ink overlay where I won't actually try to shade it in, with inks. I'll just do like I'll circle areas that I know when I get here, this is what I'm going to do. So I kind of plan it all out with that, with my inking, and then I'll do a, I'll scan it in a flatbed scanner into Photoshop, and then I'll start cutting mass. Back in the day when I was airbrushing, it was you would cut frisks to airbrush in certain areas. Well, it was a very easy transition going from frisks to cutting masks and saving alpha channels in Photoshop and in different layers. So um, it was, like I said, a very easy transition, and I uh, I think I learned Photoshop in about two weeks. And wow, uh, yeah. So it was it was very natural, and then you just keep on upgrading every time they come out there next. Yeah, well, I didn't used to. I think I stuck with 
in the nineties when I picked up, you know, Photoshop and Photoshop three point five, I just loved their brushes. So I stuck with them through probably five or six variations of Photoshop. Just didn't want to do Because that's the ten, isn't it now? Oh, it's um it's CS seven or something like that. Yeah. Maybe CS ten, but it's probably twenty versions past from the first one that I picked up. And um and finally they you know, your old program stopped opening on your old computer and you've got new computers and um, so yeah, now I have to stay. I have to sort of stay up to date with it. It's, yeah. They forced me, especially with the subscriptions that I do now. Back in the day, I would just I would always have some IT guy that would have an additional <laughs> extra serial number that they would just give me, and then I would just get the next Photoshop and not pay for it. Like a you know yeah, but now everything's in the cloud, so right? So you have to do that. That's right. Yeah, they there's no getting it out. They it. figured it out. They did. <laughs> they finally caught me. Yeah. So on the. Um, how long does it take you to do a piece, like hours-wise, an average piece? An average piece, I would say probably three or four days. And that's working 10 hours a day? Um, yeah, probably 10 hours a day. But, you know, <clears throat> I was telling Dan DeSantis that I was talking to him earlier. It's hard to – you don't just stop when you get tired. You, you, you have to find these stopping points or you can't sleep, you know, that night. You, yeah. You know, once I get to this and I know how this eyeball is going to look or is this shadow that I'm planning, is it, is it working or not? I've got to see that. And if it's not, I will stay up however late it, I need to to make sure that it does work. And then right. I'm comfortable. I'm, you know, my mind's at ease and I can actually get some sleep. And then you're – obviously, you're the one that – Brings home the bread, so then if you need to go to bed at 3 and then wake up at 11. Or no, you're a farmer, so you can't do that. No, I can't do that. No, I've got way too many <laughs> commitments. You got your, cows, just... your cows start lowing at uh, 4.30 or so in the morning, <laughs> so 3 o'clock to 4.30 is your sleep time. That's right. Well, it's not like they're coming into the barn to get milked since I have beef cattle, thank God. Oh, but okay. uh, um, you do have to work them early in the morning because once, especially in the summer, once it gets hot, they move into the trees and then you're just screwed. So uh, it's a fight to get them out. So everything has to be done in the mornings or in the evenings and you just have to, you know, you know that you're going to take it the next day. You're going to take it, you know, right in the right in the face and yeah. uh, and you just hope that uh, you'll, build, you'll get that sleep back in the next few days, you know. So it's, it's a pretty good trade-off. I mean, I've done it for... For thirty years, and uh, I wouldn't trade it. So you're able to get by on your every now and then just the three hours of sleep, and yeah, well, um, you know, I try to stay healthy, um, yeah, and stay in shape. I work out and know that uh, you know I can give my you know treat myself crappy every once in a while, and I can bounce back pretty good. Yeah, well, that's good. So then on on um, being able to juggle between it because you've got these these different things you got your fantasy your sports your um underground collection and your icp so does it is it better for you when you're able to do one of these and over this and over here and over here and just for the diversity does that make it fresh for you yes it that that's the best part about it just keeping it fresh i mean i i love after doing a series of high-end re- photorealistic illustrations to see a company come over and say, design this logo for us that's simple and it's iconic and, you know, it's nothing even close to what I've been working on is I love doing that. But after I do three or four logos, I'm sick of that and I want to do, you know, let's do an advertising piece or let's do another fantasy piece. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a nice balance. That's great. So you've pretty much got yourself um – a workable system right now that you've built up to. So is this kind of like your ideal scene for yourself that you've that you've arrived at? Not yeah. That, not that you've plateaued on on your technique, because you're always like you said you're always trying to to get better and better. But are you happy now with what you've got in terms of these things and and where you've gotten to your your station in life that you now you're able to also. Like you said, paying it forward now with, as a judge for the contest. Absolutely, I think I'm. Um I've had the best life that I – it's the exact life that I wanted. Uh, and it it's may have sort of morphed a little bit from the ideas that I have when I was 25, but um, I found that this is what works best for me. And I, I love that I'm excited about every project that I'm working on, and I'm still passionate about every project that I'm working on. Um, so you're right. The, the one thing that I had started doing probably – as soon as Emily started going into school, was starting to go to her her classes, and uh, 
her art classes and be able to pay back a little bit. And this is just, um, you know, a much larger scale of what mm-hmm. you guys are doing. So um, it was uh, perfect timing. Which is great. So now on the um, on creating art in general, so you do this stuff here. One thing I've had come up before talking to to artists is like, how do I know how much to charge, you know? And what about discounting? If something's not moving, to be able to, to discount it. And um, what's your data on? What's your opinion on that? How, that, how that works? It's kind of all about feel. You know, if you knew that if you've got this one upstart company that's coming in and you think that their, their product is going to have potential, but they don't have money to pay the usual rates that you would charge, then it's just a... You just have to feel it out and think, you know, it's, am I going to give them a break on this? Because I know that if these guys get going, then it's going to be a lot of work, and then you might give them a discount for that. And I've done that with several of the bands that I've seen coming up in the underground scene that um, don't, have the, don't have the money of, you know, um, a Kiss or an Aerosmith or Scorpions or ICP. And, um, you know, I'll cut them some slack knowing that, you know, if I get help them get their career going, that I'm going to have these, this young talent that's going to be asking me for art for the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Which is great. So now on the, um, when you work out pricing, are you a piece of art? And I realize you, you, you license everything pretty much unless you're selling it for a, an ad agency. But do you, um, when working out how to, how much to charge for a piece? Do you work it out like, okay, so I want to be able to think that I'm making $20 an hour. So as a rule, as like a rough estimate, I'll take, if it's going to be 30 hours, I'm going to charge at $20 an hour, $600 for this piece or. Right. Um, Usually I I use a $100 an hour scale. Okay. Yeah. And I kind of just guesstimate based on my decades of experience because I can pretty much nail it within a few hours, how long it's going to take me, based on their description, plus or minus revisions. And um, so I'll try to base that off $100 per hour. And then um, when you do a, a contract agreement, do you, you put in like for three revisions or five revisions or take it as it is or you don't take nothing? <laughs> no. Um, I usually If put it's in, commission. I usually put in three revisions, but there's nothing I hate. More than revisions, I hate them. I it just once I once I finish that piece and close it, close mentally close the book on it. When they come back and ask me, can you go back and change? It's it's like pulling teeth, John. I just I hate it worse than anything on the planet is going back and and changing stuff. Even though I have to admit, on rare occasion, the revisions they made actually made it look better. But uh, that's that's a rare occasion, right? But it's, so it's, just, it's in the contract, three right. revisions, and... And then, yes, then we'll start negotiating for more money. If they want a fourth. Right. So, because something with, uh, sometimes with, uh, you know, when they're going in and starting as, as a fresh, they want to, they they'll take anything. You know, someone's just hungry and they, want, they just want to do my art. So they go to um, some of these websites where, you know, we'll get you, you know, We'll meet you up with clients, and then they just get taken to the cleaners as as an artist. Right. Are there any things that you recommend to stay clear of? Um, yeah, as far as uh, some of these websites that want you to come in and bid on these projects, and you're bidding against kids that are selling artwork or logos for 99 cents, just stay away from them. I, I would say... Once you get your portfolio up to a point to where you can go to work for a company where you're going to see yourself grow and you'll have financial security while you grow, or find a good agent that's going to go out there and fight for as much money. If you don't have the experience and knowledge to negotiate yourself, find an agent that'll do it at a decent rate. And if this agent says, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to take 50%, then you need to find another agent. You need to find somebody that's going to be around 25 to 30% maximum. You know, let them, because you want them, you know, don't be greedy. Share the money if he's going to go out and work for it, yeah. work for it and get, bring you the agent or bring you the companies that you want to work with. Um, and that's just part of the business. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, this has been amazing having a chance to uh, chat oh, with you on this time. No, I've enjoyed it. Thank and you. And I think we're going to be having more conversations down the road because we just, 
this is just a cursory going over all those different things, and each one provides there, there's easily five different channels I could have really you know dug down into, but this is really good as an introduction to you, and also just as a um, an overview for an aspiring artist starting from like you said, you started from a rural town, dirt poor, and you've taken it from there and just from your own dedication, hard work, and persistence, you've taken and you've you're living your life. Right, right. Well, our entire community was was certainly um, poor farmers. I mean, we weren't we were middle class. I would say, like most families were, there was none of none of us were upper middle class or rich. But yeah, there was the, our school system was so broke. Um, the idea of art classes or any any mentorship at all uh, in that situation was just non-existent. So yes, I was I was very lucky, and um, certain doors opened, and you had to be prepared to walk through them. And um, and I'm sure luck had a big part of that too, and the right people at the right time. So yeah, I've been very fortunate, which is awesome. Well, again, thank you very much. Thank you, John, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify, and it's been globally syndicated on the United Public Radio Network. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much. Thank you. 